Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, where we develop educational resources for motivated students, including textbooks, an online school, in-person learning centers, and a variety of online applications. We build the tools we wish we had when we were students. Welcome to Aftermath, where we talk to fascinating people in and around the STEM world about where they've been, where they are now, and how their passion for math helped them get there. I'm your host, Richard Russick. My guest today is Eli Luberoff, founder and CEO of Desmos. Eli and his team built a dazzling free online graphing calculator that's being used by millions of students around the world. Desmos also develops math activities and other classroom resources to foster critical thinking and creativity. You're going to hear about how Eli's unconventional education set him on his current path and how the game of Monopoly provided the unlikely spark that ignited his love for programming and graphing calculators. He and I also discuss our shared experiences founding and running a company that supports passionate math students and how we discovered the rewards and the anxieties that come with the job. You'll also get to hear us talk about the future of educational technology and why the role that technology can play in the classroom isn't always the same as the role it should play. Welcome to the show, Eli. Thanks for having me. Now, many of the people I have on the show have a very circuitous professional path to whatever they're doing now, but your unusual path started even earlier. What was middle school like? Oh, middle school. So middle school is an interesting, I think, set of grades for for anyone. And uh, what we were told is that the goal of middle school, according to Amherst, where I, where I grew up, was to keep kids from um, getting themselves hurt or getting hooked on drugs. And there weren't, there weren't very many uh, pedagogical goals. And so we thought this was going to be an interesting opportunity to, uh, to, to change. And so who's the we? Friends, who's the we? The we is, is me and my mother, okay. who has been ridiculously supportive of my absurd educational journey. All right. So one of my best friends growing up in Amherst um, decided to try homeschooling in seventh grade. And he had a way better time than I had in middle school waking up at 6 a.m. and uh, not, not learning much. And so I ended up joining him in, uh, in eighth grade, and I, and I officially homeschooled that year. Um, I would bike over to UMass Amherst and pretend to be a student there, and I took math and physics and and, um, and some language courses. So when you say pretended to be a student, like were other people in on the joke? So you walk in and the professor's not thinking, oh, this is a very young-looking first-year student. So the professors were certainly in on it, um, and I would like to think that all of my classmates were also in on it. It was these big lectures at, at UMass mm-hmm. Amherst. Um, and I'm pretty sure that they weren't, that they saw right through it and wanted nothing to do with me. But at the time, I'm like, yeah, I'm tricking them all. <laughs> were you able to actually work with any of the other college students? Were they any of them receptive? So they were, but not because I think they liked me. So in my physics course, one of the things that we had was that part of your grade was determined by how well you did individually on your assignments and on your tests. And after you were done with it, you were allowed to do a second revision in a group and that would count as half of your grade. And people figured out relatively quickly that if they were in my group, they would do um, better on, yeah. on those. And so I ended up having a number of people who were happy to work with me, but I, I don't think that's because they liked me. How did you feel about that? And- At the time, I thought it was great. Okay. Like, I'm the coolest kid in this physics classroom. Um, I, I wasn't. <laughs> uh-huh. how, does, how did that experience shade your, the way you think about group work now? So I loved it as a concept. Yeah. 
um, to be honest. I think it worked better in theory than, than maybe in practice because it was a whole bunch of just like, what did you get? What did you get? What did you get? And then copying down the results instead of grappling with it. But I love this idea that some of what we're trying to teach students in school is, is the math or the physics or, or whatever the subject is, but that a lot of it is cooperation and grit and um, understanding arguments and making arguments and critiquing them. And, and the things that you can get out of group work are dramatically different and way more helpful towards those life skills. So I loved it as a concept. I don't know if it worked in a testing environment with a timer on it where it was just, yeah. okay, what did, what did you write down? So how would you structure group work to make it pull out those things? Oh, man, that's such a good question. Um, it's one of the things we think about a ton here at Desmos. One of the stated goals that, that we have is we want to make the classroom more social and more creative. Um, one of the things that technology often does is hurt both of those. If you look at tech as it's used, it's the person making the tech did a lot of really interesting thinking. We do a ton of interesting thinking here at Desmos. But the student using it is often just checking boxes or watching videos. And so... Um, it's a much less creative environment, but it's also a much less social one. Often right. it's one student with their headphones on doing the work themselves. Yeah. And I found that huge bummer. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. We, we were exploring the possibility of having, like, we have these little learning centers that were, well, not so little learning centers that were opening around the country, and we were experimenting with having tablets in the, like little tablet computers. All the kids would have them, and they'd sit there, and they'd scribble on them, and the teachers could see what they're doing. So we got a system set up in our office as a demo, and they came in to demo it. And the minute I looked down at my tablet, I immediately thought, oh, my goodness, this is a terrible idea. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because the minute you look at that tablet, you stop absorbing anything from anybody around you, and you've lost the most important thing of having the kids in the room, which is having the kids in the room. Having the kids in the room, exactly. Yeah. And so it's a thing that you have to very actively fight against when you're when you're a hammer is, you know, the if you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. When you've got technology – everything looks like multiple choice tests that are auto graded and go into a dashboard for a, uh, yeah. for a teacher. And so a big, a big part of our work is how can we reintroduce that social and creative element? And there's things that we do, like there are times when in the content, it just says, um, go talk with the person sitting next to you about this. Oh, um, and you can ask questions like, what is it that your partner said? My partner, Richard thinks blah. And so it forces you to have that conversation. We have this activity that's, like a game of guess who, where you have to use academic vocabulary to narrow in on, you know, which of 16 parabolas. And at the end of it, if you get it wrong, we could say you got it wrong. And instead we say, your partner was so-and-so, go find them in the room and talk to them about where the misunderstanding happened. So you have to Oh, that's cool. So like you solve this problem actually in the activity design. Exactly, exactly. Right down at the level of the activity design. And I love just structuring two, three, four people who are all trying to work on the same thing and making it so that they have to talk to each other to successfully achieve the goal. Interesting. Um, there's another one I've seen that I just love. This one is uh, out, of, out of a new math curriculum where they do what are called information gaps. Mm -hmm. And so you would have a sheet of paper with facts, and I would have a sheet of paper with a question I'm trying to answer. And the only way to answer it is by getting the appropriate facts from you, and I have to ask you. We're not allowed to share the paper. So Interesting. Right down at the activity design level, I think it's possible to, to get this kind of social, social cool. thinking happen. I'm stealing your ideas right now. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so you come out of middle school. You've been in a college classroom for a while, and then you roll into a regular high school, or do you keep homeschooling? How does that work? 
Yeah, I went back for ninth grade because I heard high school is way better than middle school. And I think high school is way better than middle school. But That says more about yeah. middle school than high school. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, uh, had a lot of the same problems, I, I found. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, even just the way that it's structured, the fact that students are expected to be there at whatever it is, 7 a.m., when all of the research shows that's a horrible time for someone that age to be thinking, and especially for me. I love sleeping, and it was a huge... Uh, a huge problem. So I did that for, for ninth grade and I ended up um, dropping out for real mm -hmm. um, early into 10th grade when I turned 16 and I was and I was allowed to. And at that point, I continued my charade and I went and I Back took to university. at Amherst, uh, Amherst College. Okay, so this is how you go through middle school. You go through middle school very briefly, drop out. Go through high school very briefly, drop out. So college, we know how this is going to end. Is that how yeah. it ended? <laughs> it's almost how it ended. So I did uh, two and a half years at college. College, absolutely wonderful experience for, mm -hmm. for me, at least. Um, and two and a half years in, um, got this hankering to, to um, learn how to do web design and, and web programming and tried to get into entrepreneurship at this point. So I dropped out of that as well. This is um, halfway through my junior year okay. for, uh, for a variety of reasons. And was going to keep going on that path. It's what all of the cool entrepreneurs do. Yeah. And uh, my mom says, no, nope, not going to have a high school dropout for a son. You're getting a degree. I don't care what degree it is. You're getting a degree. And so I ended up going back and actually completing, um, completing my degree. So that's interesting. Drop out of middle school, cool. High school, cool. College, ah. Uh... Not so, so good. I really wanted to just go to grad school. I'm um, having dropped out of college and then drop out of grad school and get into a PhD. It turns out it doesn't work that way. Yeah, yeah. I, I did the drop out of grad school thing. Now it only took yeah, me eight weeks though. So. <laughs> um, well, why didn't you go on to grad school and drop out of that too? It did work really well for me. <laughs> I can tell. Yeah, that's a. Yeah. Everyone should should follow those footsteps. Uh, I think exactly. Um, it reminds me of all of the investors out here who mm -hmm. claim that th for a couple years they were just hoodwinked by any CEO who showed up wearing a hoodie, and they're like, oh, my God, this is going to be amazing. It's like, that's not the part to replicate. Yeah. Someone's trying to start a AOPS. Yeah. Did you consider school. going? Did you consider going to grad school? Absolutely did. Absolutely did. I actually thought that was the path I was going to go on. So I double majored in, um, in math and in physics, mm -hmm. and uh, physics was where I thought I was going to probably continue. On my degree, I did research in between some of the years in college and, and loved it. And it was pretty accidental. It was just the kind of Desmos, um, or the at that point, the predecessor to Desmos, mm -hmm. um, ended up taking up all my time and being a total blast. And so, so what did you do during that gap between when you left college and then went back? You were working on something at this point? You're working on an idea? I was. So I used that opportunity to teach myself how to program. I lived with one of my professors um, and actually helped her get her... Uh, business off the ground is the chief technology officer for this company she started called Purple States, Okay. Uh, trying to bridge the political divide. And at the same time, um, started the predecessor to That's, Desmos, which was software. This, this is when? This is 2000? So, yeah, this is what, 2008 or so? Yeah, maybe Purple States was a little before its time, although there aren't any of them left, so... Anyway. <laughs> purple states left. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she would say it's as necessary as ever, and yeah. I would agree. Yeah. If, if just to locate them. Um, so you're the CTO. You're learning how to code. You're learning about building a company. Yeah. And I wasn't really learning to code at this point. Um, I started my programming career back in fourth grade on my TI-83 calculator. Uh, irony uh, is not yeah. lost. <laughs> Beautiful. C++ in eighth grade during that year that I dropped okay. out. 
one of the um, one of the first real programs that I built was a graphing calculator in C++. You could type in an equation. It could do some stuff That's that our great. can't. Um, so, so this this seed for Desmos was planted a very long time ago. Yeah, I don't think I realized it at the time. Just playing with math has always been how my brain spends its spare cycles. Going back to mom will tell stories about when I was, you know, like five and determined to count to a thousand and spent a whole afternoon pacing around the outside of a carpet getting there. Um, how long does it take you to count to a thousand now? <laughs> that is said probably a little bit faster, but probably not much. I was determined and I was <laughs> counting at that point. So what was your first uh, project that you, when you started coding, the first thing you built that you were really excited about? Um, so when I was first programming, this is on my TI-83 graphing calculator. And I would say the first set of programs that I did, um, one set of them was just helper programs for math. I actually made them for my older brother. And the payment was that he would drive me to KFC. Uh, and so this was ones where, you know, the classics you could type in, um, two angles and a side for a triangle, and it would give you the possibilities for the other two sides or mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Um, the first ones that I built for myself were all games. So Yeah, uh, naturally. Of course, yeah. The culminating experience there was a full version of Monopoly that you could actually play against. It, it had a strategy. Its strategy was terrible, but you could play against it. How long did that take you to build? Months, months and months and months, yeah. yeah. It ended up using every single variable that was available on the calculator. So all of the lists, like Y1, Y2, Y3, all of these. So you'd run it, and it would just wipe out anything else that you'd saved on the calculator. But that's, able to play. that's great. So you're marrying your interests very early here, building a business empire and graphing calculators. And <laughs> exactly. I, I like that. So let's jump to the origin story. Now, the first time you and I spoke about the company you were building, it wasn't yet this. This is eight, ten years ago. That was a long time ago. What were you working on then? Yeah, so at that point, it was the tutoring software. Mm -hmm. So this is um, after, after reading uh, Bloom's paper about the two standard deviations of improvement that show up if you have just an hour of one-on-one -on -one intervention. Okay. And realized, okay, maybe this is... Uh, this this is a way that we can help improve student outcomes for every single student. Let's get everyone a tutor. Let's build software that lets you do tutoring over the internet real time. And so it's like an early version of, um, I don't know, Google Sketch or one of these. You know, you can scribble and the other person sees the scribbles and added in all of the math stuff that I love. So you could type equations and they could see the equations and you could graph the equations and, and, and they would show up on both sides. Um, so that was what I was working on from when I left college uh, until I founded Desmos. So was this, this was two different companies then. You didn't just kind of pivot the first one into the second one? Yeah, new name. Um, okay. It just, it ended up being a lot of the same people. I mean, a lot. At that point, there were three of us. Um, but we ended up just redirecting our efforts into, into this entirely new product and, and company and all of that. Tutor Trove is actually still around. That was what the original one is called, and um, we, we sold it, and it's still running. Oh, cool. So while you were working on that, that did that spawn the ideas for Desmos? Is that? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I was using it also. Um, I, I was able to, to pay my bills when I was in college and then out of college uh, by tutoring students in Westport, Connecticut. And so 
I was using the software regularly. And one of the things I noticed was that some of the graphing features in particular had this enormous impact on understanding of some really tough to grapple with concepts. Um, things like how do different transformations of parameters affect a graph? And mm -hmm. you have your parabola and you add to the end of it and it moves up, but you add inside of the X and it moves left and what's going on. And so having a really tight visual representation of that, I found made a huge difference in understanding for the kids I was working with. And so that was when I was like, what would what would it look like to focus hard on this problem? Just on this. How hard was it to get your team to transition, to sell everybody on the idea of how hard was it for you to give up on the first vision and move to the second one? That's such a good question. One of my flaws as a human is that I've got a very bad um, memory, especially for mistakes. I think it's really helpful when you're a founder. Yes, very helpful. <laughs> it's really helpful. And so my revisionist memory is like, oh, yeah, that was such an easy call because this is a better idea um, because that's how it's turned out to be. I doubt that that's actually how it felt at the time. So how did you get the Desmos off the ground? Like, Do you have to go find funding right away or are you building for a while? Like you're what, 23, 4 at this time? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, was it the traditional, traditional route? You head to San Francisco, you start raising money? No, it was super, super untraditional. Um, so, yeah, this is, I guess, I'm 25 at this point or so, 25 or 26. This is back in 2011 was when we first had these inklings, 2012 when the, when the product uh, launched. Okay. And I was doing it all from New Haven, Connecticut. I went to school at Yale, and I yeah. stayed there afterwards. Um, in part because I had this wonderful community, and I really love New Haven. It's such an under, I think, appreciated city. Um, and so we were involved with the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute and the New Haven Council for Economic Development, and it was a really, really great place. It, it also was not a conventional place to start a company. Um, and so we ended up meeting our first investor, who was also a Yale alum when he came out. Okay. And I spoke with him, and he said, look, if you want to do this, you've got to come to San Francisco. Um, and I said, I don't, I don't want to. I, I like it in New Haven. And he said, just come visit me for a couple weeks, and then I did, and sure enough, San Francisco is a pretty wonderful place. So what sold you in that short period of time to, to leave New Haven, head over to San Francisco? Um, I'd like to say the weather, but what it actually was is we were trying to get folks excited about getting this idea off the ground and had some interest in New Haven and came out to San Francisco. And within two days, just based on a few introductions, we had commitments for four times as much money as we've been able to get in New Haven in six months. Okay. And it's it's one of the things that I think other regions are trying to emulate, but the Bay Area really just is so, or at that point especially, was so far ahead of other places in um, access to, to capital and folks who had the knowledge and the expertise and the willingness to kind of deploy it on really risky things like a 25-year-old who's never run a company before. Yeah, I mean, 25-year-old who's never run a You're kind of old to be starting a company, as I understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so how important was that first person? Are you, are you able to get there that fast or at all without that first person you met in New Haven, the alum, who brings you out there and makes the introductions? So hard to find counterfactuals. Yeah. But I'm convinced... This is our chief technology officer was the one who told me about this, and I'm completely convinced of it, that the first person who's willing to follow a crazy person is way more important than the crazy person in getting something done. 
he calls it the the first follower. There's this amazing video from Coachella of a guy dancing on a hill solo mm-hmm. for like three minutes, just looking like an idiot. And then one person goes and joins him, and the two of them are dancing. And within a minute, the entire hillside is it, dancing. It's a party. It's a party. And yeah. so the first person who's willing to say, "Yeah, that person's not crazy," I think is often the most impactful person in the development of a company. And so Mitch Kapor was was definitely that on the funding side and um, on the on the team side. Every single person that we add has a bigger impact than than I did. I think in the beginning. So is Mitch Kapor the, the person you were referring to is the person that you met in Yale? I met at New Haven? Yeah, exactly. Okay, that's a good person to meet. <laughs> he is wonderful. Yeah. That is fantastic. So who is the first follower for Desmos as as a user as a or as a major entity that is using Desmos that really kind of puts you on the map? So I'm going to give credit for that one to actually a whole community of users that I did not know existed until they found us. Uh, it turns out that math teachers are phenomenal at sharing resources and incredibly savvy at social media. I, I don't know if you found this, but they were some of the first adopters of Twitter and still are one of the most active and I think effective communities on Twitter. They were the first adopters that I saw of like Google Plus, which nobody else uses, but the math teaching community still uses really effectively. Interesting. So was that something you cultivated or something that happened and you saw it and said, oh, we've got to jump? and ride in here? For sure the latter. I had no idea. I remember back in 2013, there's this self-forming conference of middle school and high school math teachers um, who met on Twitter called Twitter Math Camp. That makes sense. Um, That happens every year. And they invited me out there. And it turned out it was this whole room of people I'd never met who not only used Desmos, but loved it and evangelized for it. And it was a totally eye-opening moment for me because my like immediate family has no idea what I do, not a clue. My mom would say it's something on the internet, you know? Yeah, yeah. And there was this community of over 100 people who used our software religiously and loved it and had feedback and ways to improve it. And I'm, I'm sure that you experienced this, this same moment, and I would love to flip that back on you on, on when that happened, when you're like, oh, this is real, and this is something that people like and rely on and would be sad if it disappeared. It's such a game-changing moment for a company, I think. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's going to National Math Counts every year. And then you're just surrounded by kids. And you're seeing the kids excited to see each other. They've worked with each other online on our site. And they're super excited about that. Their parents are crowded around the table. We're taking pictures. We're signing foreheads. It's a it's a really good time. And I, it's a very validating moment, something I wish I could bring the whole company. And it's like all 45 or 50 of us show up and so they could see how excited the kids are. Because one of the things you lose, and you have this this problem as well when you're working online you see some of the excitement but it's not like seeing them in person it's not like having people come to you and say i had this experience all through the experience you were describing in middle school and then i discovered this thing you know for some of the kids playing with your your tools it's gonna be like oh i, I really realized that i can actually build things i can make yeah. things that other people will use and if i were to go and ask those teachers what would they tell me about how they're using uh, how they're using Desmos, and was that a surprise to you, the way they ended up actually using it? Um, I love that question, but I want to blow up your spot a tiny bit first. Okay. And tell a quick story about when we were at Math Counts together, mm-hmm. and what you're describing underplays how excited every one of those students was to be around you. It was incredible to watch just 
selfies and photos and can you autograph this? It is, it's such a magical moment to experience and it was so fun to be kind of an external observer to that exact effect happening with, with everything you do. So, yeah, well, thanks. That was a, that was a really good time. Um, that was so fun. So yeah. But, yeah. Question about how, how we see um, teachers using Desmos or how they would describe that they use Desmos. Um, and it's the ways that folks use Desmos has grown uh, pretty dramatically. Even since we, we, uh, we, we met just a few years ago, mm -hmm. uh, we met back a, again at, at that math counts, um, mm -hmm. competition. So, a lot of folks just use our graphing calculator. Um, and there's a number of reasons that people do it. There's the equity and access reason, the fact that their students can all use it for free without having to buy a calculator for $100. Um, there's the, uh, re the, the fact that it's a tool that students are seeing now on their high stakes tests, and so they need to be prepared for it. The ones that we get the most excited about are teachers saying that it lets them explore math at a different depth than they, than they could otherwise. And so it's things like playing around with sliders and messing with parameters and exploring function families in with, with kind of a fluency and efficiency that's impossible otherwise. Um, or it's things like just getting students really hooked through projects. One of my favorite things that we see, and I remember this from a week after we launched, we're looking through the graphs that, that folks are saving to try to see what, what it's being used for. And we saw this just wash of uh, graphs of Mickey Mouse using circles. Yeah. And so we email one of them and we say, why did you graph Mickey Mouse? And they say, well, it was actually our class project and it was so fun that I kept going. So it was one teacher who was like, we just learned about circles and how to transform them and translate them and change the radius. Use this to draw Mickey Mouse. They were expecting three circles. Yeah. And students went totally crazy. And this is a pattern that we've seen continually um, ever since where we'll have graphs that have hundreds of equations and are someone's favorite sports team or favorite TV character. We've got more graphs of SpongeBob SquarePants <laughs> ever look through, uh, happening tens of thousands of times a day that students are graphing art inside of this tool. So what's the most amazing thing they've pr produced so far? It just always escalates. Yeah. yeah. So the Mickey Mouse one blew my mind when we saw it. And then a few days later, we saw someone do the Olympic rings. And then we saw someone do the cover of um, a James Bond movie using 130 equations. It took minutes oh to goodness. load. Minutes to load. And so we were like, oh, no, we need to support this. And we hunker down in a hole and work on performance and make it so that we can easily support 200 equations. And pretty soon, someone graphed an entire chessboard with 400 equations. Oh, and then someone took that chessboard and they made it so that you could move the pieces. Just absolutely nuts stuff the most the most equations that we've ever seen in a graph was a six month long project that a student did of a wood carving a famous wood carving mm -hmm. with over 7000 equations and, and these, are like all, to, these are all kids doing this for the most part these are all students and these are all students where their teacher would say i never asked them to do that I'm so glad they did. Yeah. But we regularly now, I would say on a weekly basis, see a new graph that has thousands of equations in it. And more and more we're seeing students who are doing things that just explore the math in great depth. A, a kid made a ray tracing program using implicit equations in Desmos so that they could render a three-dimensional scene using our two-dimensional graphing calculator. So why do you think they're using desmos to make these really intricate pictures instead of just pulling up whatever photoshop or 
Why are they using Desmos instead? I wish I could answer that. Yeah. I have no idea. I've got hypotheses. All right. So one of them is I think it's just always really fun to push a tool to its absolute limit. It's why I built Monopoly on a graphing calculator. That is a yep. ridiculous platform for writing Monopoly. And I and I did it because it's fun. It's fun to also just incrementally improve towards something that blows people's minds. And I think it's also really gratifying that when you do it, it's a platform that's familiar to all of the other students. Tens of millions of students used Desmos in the U.S. last year. And so you can say, you think your graph is cool, here's my graph. So just using... Why do people make sculptures out of toothpicks? Because you can imagine that you could get there if you wanted to. That's that's fantastic. What have, what have been the biggest surprises as you've been building out Desmos? I would say that that's one of them. That's a huge one is just kind of the depth of creativity and the incredible, incredible and really broad talents mm -hmm. of students um, across the country. This is a thing that that. I think you guys tap into really deeply and respect more than a lot of folks do. Um, there's a lot of people who think that uh, students' capacity is kind of limited and our right. job is to keep them in the rails, you know, put bumpers on the bowling alley. And as soon as you get rid of those, students blow your mind if you give them the opportunity to. Yeah, yeah. You take ceilings away from the kids and let them go. It's... So when you were building this, did you were you thinking of it as – a creative medium for the students, even at the time, or were you mainly thinking of it as a pedagogical tool that turned out to be a creative medium? Originally, absolutely just a pedagogical tool. We thought that we were recreating the TI, yeah. um, the, the things that were great about the TI calculator, had no anticipation that by, as you said, removing the ceiling, yeah. that you'd see things that were just surprising and, and delightful. Um, it did not take long. I would say it was, you know, two weeks after launch that we were like, oh, man, this isn't this is more than we thought it was. Yeah. Or maybe something completely different than you thought it was. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. The, the projects that you mentioned that, that people build and the things with the sliders and all that are is your team building most of those, some of those, a few of those? Or is the community mostly generating these sorts of projects that the teachers are using? Um, these are. For the, the calculator projects mm -hmm. that I was talking about are 100% community-driven. Okay. Um, we Once we see ones that we like, we, we share them when we're presenting, when people ask. But this is another place where the teaching community has been, I would say, the other big surprise. It's how integrated it is, how welcoming it is, how um, receptive it is to sharing and borrowing ideas and improving on ideas. It's, it's a really rich, vibrant community. Um, and all of the best ways that we've seen our calculator get used. Um, those have originated from the community and been improved by the community and shared among the community. So this sounds all great and wonderful. It's all free. Everybody, you're getting a lot of free labor, but you've got a lot of not free labor in your own building. How do you pay the bills? Yeah, love that question. I think it's a really important one that's worth asking of any company in education that you rely on, really any company that you rely on. But in education, it's even more important if you invest in something and then it disappears or you invest in something and then it says, surprise, we're going to advertise to your students during class time or surprise, we're selling your data. Um, and so it's really important to understand the business model of any, uh, especially kind of startup mm -hmm. that, that you're using. I think it's it's so, so important. For us, our model is really straightforward, which is it's a, a B2B model. And so anyone can use our tools for free on our website. And then companies can license our tools to make their stuff 
better. And so they're using what's called an API, an application programming interface that lets you put um, the Desmos calculator inside of your textbook or your digital assessment. So for example, we work with the state tests in now 25 states where you go in to take the digital test, you press a button in the corner that says calculator and up pop Desmos. And so students get the same experience that they had at home inside of the test. And so those, um, we, we get paid for those. We're built into about um, 45 partners at this point. Okay, how hard is, so who's the first follower there? Like once you have 40 followers, you can get you can get 45, but when you have zero followers, getting five is harder. Yeah, there were there were a few um, a few folks early on who uh, I think saw the potential in, in what we were doing and really helped us discover this business model. Um, one of them was called Edgenuity, uh, which does um, course remediation and one was the first one of the first publishers. A company called Mathalicious was one of the first to use our stuff and use it really creatively. Um, actually, Springboard at the College Board was right. another one of the early adopters that made us realize that that this was a kind of exciting exciting product for partners and then you're totally right the first and the then first it goes. Part, and then it goes from there so was that also just kind of an accident that you stumbled into this area or was it like we have to find some money these people might pay us let's go try to do this were there nervous moments in there where you're like uh, what are we going to do how are we going to pay the bills we can't just keep raising money forever um, yeah, totally. And we've we've tried to raise very, very little money, actually, um, on purpose. This is another one where I think there's a chance that my memory is revisionist in my favor. <laughs> but this was a very intentional strategy, this idea of kind of this circular self-reinforcing loop where we make a product that's absolutely wonderful for teachers and students. Um, they will advocate to all of the products that they use and say, Desmos is wonderful. You should use them. And those products will benefit from the fact that a lot of people already are familiar with it and that it's well-tested and well-vetted and well-supported. Yeah, and they pay money that lets us improve it. And so it ends up being this virtuous cycle that benefits everyone involved in it um, in terms of which the first partners were. So that, that was the plan we laid out from the very beginning. And then the first partners were accidental. Um, okay. They were one on that. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. That's nice. <laughs> that's really nice. Uh, so... What's your role? What did you do yesterday? Oh, such a good question. Um, I'm going to ask you the exact same one after this, so get, <laughs> get excited. Um, I end up splitting my time three ways. So my role at Desmos is the CEO, and that means many things. I think the thing it means the most is whatever has to happen. That's right. <laughs> so on Thursdays, my role is I'm the one who takes out the trash because someone has to take out the trash. Um, and then in the meanwhile, it's either doing whatever is the most important or hiring someone to do that thing. Mm -hmm. And so across the board, I've been trying to make it my job to find people who are better than I am to take over responsibilities that I have. And so, for example, five years ago, we found a chief technology officer who's just absolutely spectacular. And before that, I was the chief technology officer as well. Um, four years ago, we found a chief academic officer, a fellow named Dan Meyer, who's yeah. absolutely brilliant and wonderful. Um, and before that, I was the chief academic officer. Now we're way better off because he taught and he's got a PhD in education. It's it's all of all of the things I'd want. And he's well known. And how did you sweet talk him into joining you? That was a many year project. That was a many year project. <laughs> I found the very best people. What they're looking for is grit. They want to know that you're determined to make this work and patience. They want to know that you're going to be here for a while. And so we started talking a month after we launched the company was when I first emailed okay. him. And it was... Uh, 
you know, just a partnership that grew and blossomed over years until he's like, okay, this is the place where I'll be able to, to do my best work. That's right. And you, you offer him a stage. Exactly. Is- well, yeah, it's, it's such a, a mutual stage too, because yeah. he's got such a, a passionate following himself and combining the two has been That's a good point. really, really exciting. Um, so today, what do I do? I would say I split my time three ways equally. So one third of it is um, working on the team and making sure that everyone has everything they need to be successful and um, doing meetings with the with the folks that I work most closely with and, and all of that. One third is focusing on product. So I still lead um, product development here uh, for new products and for improvements to our existing products. And the last third is partnerships. So this is working with the high stakes testing companies and with our, our, um, our biggest publishing partners and those kinds of things, making sure everything we build is what they want and finding new ones and making sure Desmos will be here for years to come. So is that mainly managing the partnerships or building new ones or both? It's both. It's both. Yeah. And I love that work. I've got this thing where once someone takes a, a bet on Desmos, I just am grateful to them until the end of time and I will do anything to, to support them. Um, so it's finding new partners to make sure we can continue to grow and then every one of our existing ones making sure they're thrilled. Your turn. My turn. All right. Actually, before my turn, quick question is, I didn't yeah. hear anything in there talking about having to deal with investors. I hear all these stories about operating the VC world. We don't, so I don't know anything about it. Is the fact that you haven't had to raise much money means you don't have to deal with your investors very much and managing yeah. expectations and all that sort of thing? That's exactly right. We raised a million dollars right when we started mm-hmm. from a set of absolutely spectacular investors. So uh, Mitch K4, K4 Capital, uh, Mitch and Frida uh, have such a mission focus. I mean, they're incredibly successful investors. They were some of the first money into Uber, um, for example, uh, and obviously incredible entrepreneurs in their own right. Yes. But their huge focus is making sure that um, we're closing the achievement gap in mathematics and that we're building equitable and diverse teams in Silicon Valley and focusing on these kinds of issues. So they take a very, very long-term lens, just like we do. Okay. Uh, Google Ventures was one of our early investors. Same idea. They're, they don't need to return money to their LPs within a four-year window. Google's going to be here forever, and their goal is to bet on the future. And so we found these investors that are really interested in long-term success and really supportive of what we're doing. And the fact that we didn't raise much money means also that that they can be much more patient with the capital. So we're not kind of caught in that hamster wheel that you hear about out here. All right. So now I guess my day. Uh, Yesterday was a special day for us because we launched our Beast Academy online learning system. So this is our online... Yeah, so that was really exciting. It wasn't. A, it's a, it was a soft launch. We're going to do a more public launch in a week once we're once we're sure everything's working. So most of the morning was standing around waiting for the first order to come in, and you know doing all the testing and everything. So that was. And then there's you know the company lunch, and we celebrate. We celebrate that everything has gotten off the ground well. The day before was probably a more typical day for me. I spent probably two two and a half hours in the studio. I'm making videos for the Beast Academy online. And then I spent the next four and a half hours in meetings. And you may you may well know the, the joy of doing that. But you know, one of them is a product design meeting for something that we're going to be launching later this fall. Uh, one of them is just HR issues and, and how we're going to you know develop various develop various teams within the company. And then another was just meeting with our, our national operations director for our, our AOPS Academy for our, our learning center. So these are all very very different things. And this is probably something you can empathize with. I think one of the one of the skills you have to develop 
in running a company is context switching. You need to be able to go from this thing to that thing to that thing. And then there are these 14 emails that are all on different topics, and you need to be able to get from one to the next pretty quickly. Um, so I would say that's what I spend a lot of my day on is just switching from this thing to the next. But I still get a pretty good mix, and I still get to get in the studio and do a little teaching every once in a while. So that's that's nice too. I love it. So what what are your hopes and fears? Like what keeps you up at night? Does anything keep you up at night? Are you afraid of TI? <laughs> um, TI is actually one of the few things I'm not afraid of. Uh, I don't think that you can successfully operate a small organization that's trying to do big things without being totally paranoid. I don't know if you, uh, if you agree. A lot of the fears that I think many companies have to worry about, um, we don't, just like you don't, mm -hmm. uh, because we've avoided investors, because we're cash flow positive, so we get to yes. um, you know, build for long-term future. Um, but there's a number of things that I have actual nightmares about on a semi-regular basis, and they're almost always things going wrong with the team or things going wrong with uh, with our partners. So I would say once a month I have a nightmare that someone quits and I come into the office and it turns out they're super happy, and I'm like, oh, I'm glad, I'm glad that was a nightmare. <laughs> or, or things like something going really wrong for a partner in a really important situation. Um, I would say my biggest existential fears are things like what if the product that we're building isn't um, isn't helping right making sure that we're always building in the right direction um, yeah that's I mean that's really a scary fear in education is how much of this stuff is actually working how much does it matter is it all a red queen race I, I really you know, you, yeah 100% you don't have that if you're making a you know photo sharing app like if, if that goes wrong it doesn't matter if we're convincing people to use Desmos, and if a lot of people are using Desmos, and people use it for hundreds of thousands of hours a day, mm -hmm. and it turns out that it's short-circuiting really important learning, that would be a disaster. I'm, I'm very confident that it's not, but I want to make sure that we always stay on that right side of, of actually supporting learning. Yeah, and it's hard to ever produce the actual data, because to do the experiment, you know, people ask us, where are your data for art of problem solving? I'm like, okay, how are we going to do a random controlled trial here? You know, you're going to take... Yeah. This group of kids and say, okay, you can't use that tool. It's, it's, yeah, that, that thing's hard. So you're not afraid of TI. Are they afraid of you? Um, I think so. I think so. I'm not sure afraid is, is quite the right word. I think they, they see the writing on the wall and they know it's coming. Mm -hmm. um, calculators are about 3% of their business because they're mostly military contracting and semiconductors. Mm -hmm. And it's an insanely profitable part of their business. Um, the numbers we've heard are that it's somewhere between 400 and 500 million dollars a year that they make selling calculators. Wow. Um, which is absolutely bonkers and they also know that it's not the future. And I think what they're trying to do classic innovators dilemma is just hold on to that market for as mm -hmm. long as they possibly can. Um, and they're not they're not happy that we are speeding up the demise of of that business. But exactly the same amount that they're not happy, I think students and parents especially are, are, are happy. Yeah, that's a huge win. Yeah, I, I guess we feel the same way about some of the established avenues for education at times. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. So, and they feel the same way about you. Yes, that's probably true. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, are they they're gonna are they gonna buy or copy you, or they don't really uh, have the capacity to to copy you? And you're not looking I, to sell. Yeah, we're not looking to sell, and, we, and we've made that clear to them um, a, a few times over the years. Um, I think, I mean, it would be hard to copy what we've done. Our, our team is, is really exceptional, I, I think, but 
they also their budget is a hundred times Desmos's. And so if they really wanted to, it feels like it would be pretty cocky of, of me to say that they couldn't. I think the truth is they don't want to. That would speed up their demise even more. It's classic Christensen uh, innovators dilemma where it is better for them for our product to not exist. It's yeah. not that they wish that they had our product. It's that they wish that nobody did. Yeah, and I guess another weird thing you, you might think is that if they did build one, it, uh, it's probably not going to be as good, and it might increase your market rather than shrink it. Totally, uh, totally. When Khan Academy first started to really get a lot of press, I went to our, our CFO, Dave Patrick, and I'm like, should we be worried about this? And Dave said, we should be worried that they're going to fail because if they fail, it'll put a huge black mark on online education. I was like, wow. That's really smart. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I think that's spot on. And that, yeah. So, what are your hopes for the future? What does victory look like? We've got a few. We've got a few. Um, I'm convinced that for a company of our size, uh, continued existence is basically the thing that it takes to succeed. Like, mm -hmm. as long as we're still here and still doing good work, we're going to keep getting better and keep growing. Um, so, that's kind of the super simple foundational goals is I want I want to be able to continue to, to do the work that we're doing. We've got some more specific goals. Um, one of them is is we just love for our calculator tool and for other tools like that to be kind of the default, the assumed way that you do math through a computer. Um, if you want to do something like graphing or constructive geometry like our new tool or if you need a scientific calculator, a matrix calculator, we want to be just kind of the assumed default around the world. And and we're we're starting to get there um, in a bigger way than kind of I, I expected for how long we've been here. But that's just one of them. Um, we also would love to, uh, to have a bigger impact on kind of core curriculum. I would love to be the default way that students are spending their time in math class um, is, is using more of the technology that, that we've built. Um, and as part of that, I want to know that what we've built is good. I, I would love to prove that, that the work we do can push forward the way that classrooms are run. And to actually prove that students like math better, that they understand math better, that more students feel like math is for them. Um, our goals ultimately are, I think, really compatible with yours. And I, I love having organizations that focus on both ends. Like um, AOPS is a way of finding and cultivating the very, very strongest math students. Mm -hmm. And I think of Desmos as a way of raising the boats for every single student. And our goal is very much about every single student in a classroom feeling more confident with math, feeling like they like it better, um, yeah. having a understanding. That's the dream. I'm all for you making more students who want to do our, <laughs> our math. That's the dream. I would love every student to be a capable participant in democracy and for more and more students yeah. to be math nuts like you are, like I am, like, like yeah. your users are, which I just love. Yeah, I think that's that's very, very true. Um, how has your view of technology in the classroom changed as you've been as you've been doing this? Like did you come in with a certain vision of technology is gonna revolutionize the classroom and is there more nuance in that view now? Yeah, I would say that every single year I get more skeptical of technology in the classroom in general. Yeah. I don't know if you're the... If you're I'm the same thing. way with online education. I'm supposed to tell you it's going to revolutionize everything. It's fantastic for a certain set of kids, and we're right in the middle of that that circle of 100%. students. But I think there are a lot of people who need need more than, than to be on a computer screen. 
and there's stuff that a computer screen can't give you, just like that kind of social part that we started with. I'm, I'm generally a tech skeptic. I, I don't use Facebook anymore. I read books that have pages that you can flip. I, How do those work? It's crazy. They never run out of batteries. It's absolutely, <laughs> it's absolutely marvelous. Um, you can flip to any part of it instantly. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm confident that the vast majority of technology that's used in classrooms is neutral to detrimental. I think that's and I'm right. also confident that the very best parts of technology are absolutely magical. I, I subscribe to the Douglas Engelbart school of thought where computers are there to augment human intellect. Yeah. And every time that computers are augmenting human intellect, it is a good use of a computer. But and if it's replacing, oh, then... Yeah. Totally. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I mean, it gives me even more confidence that Desmos is going to continue to build amazing things knowing that it's built by someone who's skeptical, right? If you're skeptical of the use of technology in the classroom, you're way more likely to be very deliberate about how you're intending it to be implemented in the classroom. So that's that's great. Now, I often close by asking uh, what you would suggest to students who want to follow in your footsteps, but I'm going to split that question in half just for you. Uh, now, the first is I'm a middle school student, I'm a high school student, and boy, I really don't like school, and I want to take an unconventional path through education. First of all, how do I convince my parents to let me do it? Second of all, uh, what what are the warnings you give to the, the kid who's going to do this, who's going to take off on that path that you took through middle, high school, and even college? Yeah, I, I love that question. Um, I don't think that the path I took is very replicable, and I don't think that it's because I'm special, but I think it's because my circumstances are so special. I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts, that has a phenomenal public edu education system, and I was also a two-minute bike ride from UMass and walking distance to Amherst College, these two incredible institutions. Um, I had a mom who was not only comfortable supporting me, but I discover after the fact was behind the scenes pulling strings to make this all possible. She was... I thought I was sneaking into those classes. I was not. She was talking to the professors. She was making sure that it all worked. She was doing it in a way that I didn't know because I'm a rebellious 13-year-old and I would have been furious. Um, so, Smart. Yeah, in incredible, incredible, um, incredible parent. So I'm not sure that it's actually a, a path that I would recommend if you don't happen to have the privilege of those ridiculously wonderful circumstances. Um, but I would say take ownership over your education okay. um, and take ownership over your education along with your with your parents and figure out how to make the best of whatever you have. So even earlier when I was in sixth grade and the math wasn't working well for me and my mom went to the public school and got someone to come in, to help me and one of my friends accelerate through algebra and geometry. Um, and there, there are ways to do it inside of the system, but it, it's hard. It's yeah. totally worth doing though. So I think that's the takeaway is take control over it, take it very seriously, have it be a very important thing um, to you yeah. and figure out a way to make it work for you as well as you possibly can. Don't be a passive kind of yeah. concern of education. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the parental investment because that's typically what I've seen is the kids who have really been able to you know, leverage opportunities. There's a parent there doing some serious heavy lifting. Um, and sometimes, yeah. like you just said, sometimes the kid doesn't even know. <laughs> yeah, I didn't years later. That's cool. So now, second second target, you're talking to a college student who's uh, interested in starting a company in some area that they've been thinking about, tinkering with for, for a long time. 
What are you going to tell them? Um, I'll tell them a few things. I'll say this is the perfect time to do it. You've got total life flexibility. Um, and, and do it uh, for sure if, you, if you're excited about it. I would also say that it is way harder than you think it's going to be and way less glamorous. Um, I Amen. think that, yeah, one of the, one of the things, this effect that I'm going to put this one partly on VC and partly just on culture where kind of CEOs and founders and they're, they're totally lionized. It's, and all that you read about are the successes. All that you read about are the things that go well. And every single article you read, you should assume was wrapped by a PR person whose job was to make it look as glamorous as possible. And in fact, the vast majority of companies go nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and the vast majority of bits of work that we're doing are totally unglamorous. I'm taking out the trash and I'm sitting in meetings. Yes. Um, on the other hand, it is the only opportunity. It's the only job where you can define everything about it if you want to. Like I get to choose every single person I work with. And as a result, they're all incredible. Um, that's, that's something I, I would trade off for taking out the trash and working really hard for many more years than I think you ever see. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. I, I think of it as I, I, I have a lot more I get to's in my job than I had in other jobs. And I also have a lot more I have to. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so in, in, in closing, I'm going to give you the floor um, to let people know where they can find out more about Desmos and hear more from you. Yeah, so Desmos, if you just go to desmos.com, it has information about all of the all of the tools we have, um, links to the teacher resources, links to our tools. Um, if you ever forget Desmos, you can also just search for graphing calculator and we'll be the first result in now a few dozen languages. If you ever forget that you're looking for graphing, just search for calculator and we're actually the first result for that as well. Um, so what's the first thing they should click on when they get there? Um, here's my suggestion is to just go right into the tool and mess around. Cool. One of the things that you can do when you're on a piece of paper is you don't have to wait for instructions or permission. You just scribble and then you go from there, get into the tool and mess around. And if you ever want inspiration, if you're a student and you're curious, go click on some of the examples that other students have made. If you're a teacher and you're curious, head over to learn.desmos.com or honestly just go onto Twitter and ask a question. And if you include Desmos in it, someone is going to answer you within a few minutes. Uh, you've built oh, an amazing tool, and it sounds like an amazing community as well. Uh, my guest today has been Eli Luberoff. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Aftermath. You can find show notes for this and other episodes on our website at aops.com slash aftermath. We want more people to discover this podcast, so if you like this episode, please take a moment to share it with others you think will enjoy it. Then head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. I'm Richard Russick. See you next time. Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, through which we've had the opportunity to work with hundreds of thousands of eager math students around the world. Our textbooks, online school, in-person learning centers, and various online resources empower students to develop the skills they'll need for success at top-tier universities and in internationally competitive careers. Come check us out at aops.com.